Maguire, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lennon. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Ireland lose a battle for the ages against the All Blacks. It's another quarterfinal defeat. Uh, I said last week, the lads go out and, you know, give it their all. I can't be too unhappy. I was pretty unhappy on Sunday. I'm I'm less unhappy now. I haven't watched it back. I haven't really indulged in all the podcasts and stuff that you would normally listen to after a game. Uh, we haven't lost a game in so long that it's, um, it's very, it feels an un- unusual feeling. But uh, losing a quarterfinal is very familiar. Um, I'll start by prefacing it a little bit further and say I saw a comment that said this is the worst of all of them and I was like if you think this is worse than four years ago when we got absolutely hockeyed out the gate by this, the same opposition you're mental this was a great game and it's unfortunate to lose it but it was a great great performance in a fantastic game of rugby by a very 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 good team I absolutely agree. It's yeah, it's very, it's disappointing to lose. But the one phrase I kept on coming back to is like, it's, you know, cup rugby. When you <laughs> when you lose, it's over. It's fucking blunt, or it's sharp, whatever. It's traumatic. Uh, but if the team didn't play their best game of the season, they certainly played an incredibly gutsy game. You know. They went 13-0 down to New Zealand, which is like going, it's like going 20, 21-0 down to another team. They managed to wrestle it back to one point twice. And and, and at the end, they were on fumes, but so were New Zealand. Um, and it was a performance with great heart and grit, which was dissimilar to all our other quarter to final losses apart from 1991, and it was an inestimably better game than 1991 game. Um, so, yeah, it's it's very disappointing. They're a super team. I don't think the team were looking, you know, thank, you know, hopefully we just win a semi or a quarterfinal, and that's the end of their ambitions. They thought they could go and win the tournament, which is a very different position to have been in than any other Irish team. The Irish teams may have harbored uh sort of delusions that they were there to win the tournament before but this team had a had made themselves put themselves in a great position to do it uh so i was very proud of them and very disappointed for them <laughs> it's w- hard to- were you proud of the team <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 not the worst i'm uh, when you started off with that, I was going through my head going, my goodness, like which one, which one is the worst? Um, like in, in, in 2000, the most disappointing was 2011. And it still sort of rankles because that one got away from us. 
in, and we had a conversation. I traveled over, six of us in the group, and we went via London and we were having a conversation in London and, you know, the the line that this was Ireland's most talented ever team came up and Trav was like, it's not though, like 2011, if you, if you, if you go through it, I think 2011, and he started off at the back row. I'd always start off at Brian O'Driscoll, any team that he was in. Like, it, it was such a difference. And then I'd look at who our props were. And we had Mike Ross and Keane Heady. So we didn't we didn't have that, you know, um, basically didn't have that weakness, a prop, that, or I don't want to say weakness. Weakness might be a bit too much. But with John Hayes and Marcus Horan, you kind of needed a tailwind in terms of opposition scrummaging and interpretation from referees. So it's it's a bit ah, fucking ironic, or I don't know if it is ironic. It, it's a bit galling to look at Andrew Porter and Tyg Furlong and go, it was an interpretation at scrum time that was one of our Achilles heels in this. But I think that 2011, where you've got a choice of O'Gara at Sexton out half, you've got Darcy and O'Driscoll, and O'Driscoll in particular, in the middle of the park and you've got two really good props and you're playing Wales and like miles away from Wales mm. for a semi-final with a not particularly shit-hot French team um, like is is definitely the one that got away. So that one is is the most disappointing. 2003, we just didn't show up. Um, oh, we got, yeah, well, we got killed in that game. I have other memories of, of losing matches in France and in particular sitting in Montparnasse after France beat us in a nine o'clock kickoff in a in a pool match in two thousand and seven, and just we didn't have a like Hugo and I went home pretty sure that night, or did we all go home? Definitely the two of us went oh. back. We were all there, were we? And we didn't have a place to stay because the match was on so late that it just made sense to go to Montparnasse and wait for the first. Train. Oh God, I'd forgotten that until now. Uh, Jesus, it, yeah, it was like there was nothing to cheer in that World Cup at all, and yeah, you sort of got you know what, like Irish rugby's. It's not actually in bad shape. It's just that it was a shit tournament. And the following season, but that season, Munster won the Heineken Cup and the following season, Ireland won the Grand Slam. So, but that didn't make that night any better. Um, No, that was fucking grim, all right. So there's, it, it seems to be a much more widely spread disappointment that a lot more people shared in. I was fortunate enough to go to the last three matches that the team played, the South African match, I like instinctively at the time, I thought to myself, this is definitely one of the best matches I've ever been to. I would put it, I would put it perhaps as Ireland's best win. Um, it, it was, the comment has been made that the only unbeaten team left in the competition are England. Um, so it is possible to, to win a match and to go on and win the tournament. But I also think that the, the confidence and the momentum that you get from winning mm-hmm. is far preferable than losing and then having to pick it up. So I don't think losing a match in the group stages is a nail in your coffin, but I think it's preferable to win all of them. Like winning, winning is just better. You know, like there's the only downside to winning, and they're not correlated, is if you lose a load of your players while doing so. But you're like, you can lose a lot of players while losing a match it, like it, you can lose a lot of players in training it you know as we did as we did like but it, it has nothing to do with uh with losing or winning 
Uh, what was the winning and the losing of it on the day? I I was reading this or I was telling you this earlier today when we were having dinner. Like New Zealand, over the course of eighty minutes, had one handling error. Like that's what it says on on the uh, World Rugby. I don't actually remember it. <laughs> you know, it was like Lester Fanganuku is, is credited as having a handling error. The only All Black who took the pitch to have one. They either conceded three, according to the SBN, or four turnovers the entire game. Uh, four by the World Rugby stats. Uh, Ireland didn't have a put into a scrum, which means that New Zealand, if they had a knock on, it was an advantage to Ireland. Like they played an incredibly skillful. They played to the to the peak of their abilities. At the moment, yeah, to say the peak, it was. They're delighted with the performance and the result in New Zealand. Like that's the coverage I've like I haven't rewatched the full match. Started to <laughs> fucking didn't. Um, so they're really happy with how they played. They're extremely happy with how they defended. Like if you recall, at the start of the game, they showed the amount of tackles Ireland had to make after New Zealand's amazing opening burst, and it was like sixty-five versus thirteen or something like that. But in the end, it turned out to be. They had the guts of 80 tackles to make more than us, including 100 in the last uh, quarter of the game. Um, so they defended well. They took their chances. They took their chances extremely well, but they also uh, came out on top in the two major set pieces, scrum and line out. Um, the scrum, as we mentioned before briefly, you know, and we're not the only people saying this. Alex Corbusiero, who's you know one of the preeminent scrum commentators around, is saying that not Barnes is. It's a matter of interpretation. Some of those, which I can take, you know, and the line out for the uh, fourth time in five games was not catastrophic by any means, but let us down in significantly important occasions. I felt maybe due to possibly overthinking it rather than going to the very uh, productive and yet simple get man in the air, then hit him at two that we'd used against Scotland. Scotland was the game in which our line had functioned best. Uh, so my feeling that is potentially that the line out coaching team and, and, and players, callers thought like the All Blacks are going to cover this. So let's, showed them something different for the first two and uh, it was didn't really pan out. So the Kiwis won the tackling, they won the handling, they won two of the three important set pieces and uh, lost the discipline. It was only 10 all, but obviously they conceded two yellows, including the penalty try. And overall, they were the sharper team on the night. I guess the only other thing, the immediate thing that I'll add is uh, pace. So when Will jo- when when Moanga went through, uh, it Will Jordan on his shoulder, and it wasn't by accident because it was you know it was, it was a designed set play, um, and he finished it off almost without a hand being touched on him. Whereas the Kiwis left Ireland a good bit of space outside, and like frequently. James Lowe and, and Mac Hansen and Jimmy O'Brien were left in space, but Ireland didn't have the, basically didn't have Robert Balakin, 
to give a half a gap to and go through. And Robert Balakun was given adequate chances, you know, like from really from, and, and recently, like not. Playing for Ireland a year ago. Playing for Ireland a year ago, played for Ireland, went on tour with Ireland, um, played for Ireland in the Autumn Internationals and just, it didn't go for him. And Farrell, like Farrell comes across as a very, very fair selector and he comes across that, um, like the communication looks good. So, I think he was told exactly what he needed to do and he didn't do it. And you're sort of going, well, like that's, that's on you. Um, but <clears throat> I thought the same looking at South Africa with, uh, Colby and Kirk Yarens at, the, like they've, they've real pace out in the wings. Frightening pace. And it makes, it makes a difference. It, it does make a difference. I think that Ireland's backline, like Hugo Keenan is fit. Um, Gary Ringrose has very good balance. So does Mac Hansen. James Lowe is a very good footballer. Bundy was as fit as he's ever been. But there isn't real pace across the back line in any of the positions. And, you know, again, you compare it to 2011 and O'Driscoll and Gordon Darcy. And probably at that stage, Darcy didn't have the same explosive ability that he'd that he displayed earlier on in the decade in 2004 2005 2006 but O'Driscoll still had marvelous balance and ability to find a space and there's a difference Tommy Bowen Keith Earls were the wingers then Tommy Bowen Keith Earls were the wingers then like and, and there's a difference in that ability to beat a guy one-on-one -on -one and to get a soft shoulder and to make a pass and to offload so that's a that's a pace. selection choice though by Farrell that, you know, yeah, yeah. And like he's ignored guys, especially particularly Balakum, uh, who has a, like outstanding pace in favor of of Hansen and Lowe. And, and Ireland won the Grand Slam mm. and like and beat South Africa and scored a load of tries against Scotland. So I don't think it was I don't think it was the miss of the World Cup. But when you're looking at one of the differences, just that pace really makes a difference. I met Omo and Andy O'Brien uh, before the match, and Omo said something about, oh, Porter's not a good scrummager. And I was like, you figure, Omo, like, he's very strong. And he goes, ah, but he always throws his hips out. And like, I was shocked watching the match when like half an hour later, and I was there going, I can't believe like this, this is immediately coming to fruition. And like in some of it, you're going, well, like, where else can he go? Like you're the, the tight head's buckled in because he's under pressure. Yeah. But also there's a part of it that, particularly with all the Safas around, there was the, the Safas are far more visible than the Kiwis. I don't know whether, I don't know why it is, to be honest. I don't know if the Kiwis are just, like if the Safas are more confrontational fans or, you know, the, the flash of gold is more visible or the Kiwis are just so stoic. Do it. Do it. That uh, although they're really nice people, they they don't really make their presence felt. But the Safas are there, and they 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 love their rugby. They they've a real rugby knowledge. Um, they make really good comments, and there's party that sort of goes, God, like should we have scrummaged differently? Should we have gone from the right to the left on a on a diagonal, and like. Taking taking that away from Wayne Barnes immediately, or even or even given the given the front row that New Zealand had, like should should we have 
should we have just always scrummaged square or or gone that right to left, which is very difficult? And again, you're sort of gone. That's such a fine margin. Like it's it's hindsight, first of all, but it's it's and you need to do it the first time. Like, you know, so the first penalty you can't really criticize, even though like it does make a difference in a game that tight, can penalize twice for it. You're like, oh um like it's that that's a choice. So but you know, was, I think Ireland didn't look under pressure in the scrums. It's the sort no. of frustrating thing. If anything, on the penalties, when I say if anything, there is no offending. We were going forward on both times that we were penalised. Yeah, which is which is very hard to take. They're very technical penalties, mm. but you're you're kind of going to get done for the same thing twice. Is annoying. Shame on. Well, me. yeah, it's it's funny that you say that. You noted that Ireland had no scrum put-ins. Essentially, you had no idea, you had no way of showing the referee then what a, you know, a dominant ball on your own scrum looked like. The only the only picture you got to see was you uh, blitzing, trying to attack their scrum, trying to yeah. attack their scrum, a scrum that like didn't cause us massive um, problems during the summer last summer when we played them. Didn't cause us huge problems during this game. The penalties were not for going backwards and collapsing. They were for Andrew Porter angling in. Um, so, you know, in the second one, especially the one that was closer to the touchline, you can see the New Zealand pack is in poor shape. And to suggest that that's all caused by one guy, <laughs> he'd have to be the fucking greatest scrummage of all time to make Brody Retallick's head yeah, pop out. Of I, saw that, I saw that comment by Alex Corbusiero, and he said, oh, Porter's got a reputation for... Driving in, and I'm like, because he's a loose head, like all I'm loose like, heads. You know, funny, everyone should fucking mention it now, having never mentioned it ever before. Like, I just, I thought that was very conveniently explained away. Uh, how then, if we lost so many facets of the game, did we were we held up over the line away from being? Team's got big heart. The team has got a big heart. Team has got a big heart. You know, they came back into it twice. Um, like, I, the same way they lost it three times, you know. So, yeah, they, they, they played, they have a great feeling of together. So, firstly, they're a fucking really good team, an outstanding team. They've been number one in the world for 65 weeks in a row. They've beaten everyone. Um, and they're really well coached. They have a load of outstanding players, like a number. They've got two, like, world player of the years award winners not just nominees in that starting lineup loads of experience uh it's been a very stable team in terms of how it's been selected and they had the form player in the entire world cup in bundiaki who mightn't like probably won't win player of the tournament because we got knocked out of quarterfinal but unless somebody else goes absolute gangbusters in the next two rounds he's still going to be the best player in the, the tournament how well he's played and so like it's they're just a really good team with a load of heart and they they couldn't manage to play their best rugby they couldn't get off to a good start like we needed a hot start against New Zealand because I knew they were going to come out hot and so that's mostly the answer the answer are basically intangibles you know they have loads of heart they're really good they're not a team who goes away you know they're not a Scotland and um and it was close. And as you say, like Keller come very, very close to getting that ball down. And it's standing tackle by Jordan Barrett, who's, you know, 
beast of a man as well. Yeah, I remember seeing, I remember, I, I know I've said this about nine times in podcasts, but I remember there's, I think the 2018, he was traveled as a younger player, but I saw him doing a, like a question and answering in a big Mercedes showroom on Shelburne Road. And I thought it was, genuinely thought it was Scott Bart when I looked in the window. I was like, he's fucking busy. He's been playing in like an hour and a half. And it's Jordan Bart. The guy's a, like, he's a full on giant, strong fellow. But as you said, like, normally that ball just slips down off the leg and, and goes down and touches the ground, brushes a blade of grass, and that's a try. Um, so I, I have no answers as to why we lost or why we could have won, but those are, those are feelings which are more important than answers. At the game, when we go 13-0 down, I thought to myself, oh, man, like, can't give the All Blacks a 13-point head start. And yet, Ireland... And you were right. <laughs> um, only just. Ireland kept on playing well and kept on attacking New Zealand and had a real, I don't know, layered game, which is which is the way they attack, really. You know, I think Farrell uses the word connected more than layered, talks about connections a lot, talks about connectedness in attack and in defence. And it's in as much as we sort of talked about like the fact that there wasn't real cutting edge pace, the team is a real togetherness and a real coherence about how it attacks and didn't get knocked off at stride at all by being 13 points down. Didn't didn't try to chase the game. You can sort of argue they put the ball in the corner, but they're so accustomed to putting the ball in the corner rather than kicking over the sticks. Do it all the time. That it's it's not really that controversial anymore. Like and They've they've made that decision as a team. It's it's a conscious decision about what they want to do. Um and then when they scored and they sort of when Bundy conjured that tryout, um almost a nothing, you kind of think to yourself, like, that's deserved. Ireland are really sticky, strong, and don't go away and have just won so many matches. And again, I think it's important to sort of say that that Losing to New Zealand, like the, there's no swapping it with winning against South Africa. You know, the, there's no trade-off. It's not available. It wouldn't necessarily have been any better had we played France in a, in a in a quarterfinal rather than playing the All Blacks. And and even then, like it, like it doesn't matter. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter getting knocked out in the quarterfinal. The team was close to beating New Zealand. The New Zealand team playing really well. Had they beaten the Kiwis, they would have gone into the semi-finals on the back of having beaten the Springboks and the Kiwis. And it's and that's just obvious to say. Like it's it's so obvious to say that it's it it's almost worth repeating because it it just would have been such a massive pickup. It would have given them such confidence, such belief that even going in to play the Springboks in the final, um they wouldn't have feared them. You know, and uh, you're sort of presuming, like I'm presuming that New Zealand would beat Argentina, but I think Ireland would have beaten Argentina had they played them because they'd have forgotten to lose. Yeah, absolutely. Argentina aren't that good. Like Argent- Argentina aren't a fucking patch on Ireland. You know, and like Argentina have talented players. Um, they don't have the same professional setup that they used to have. Um. But they're not as they're not as tight as Ireland. And they played their by far their best game of the World Cup. They still made plenty of mistakes, but 
and we're not going to go to this game on depth, but like they made the least mistakes of all the games I've seen them play yeah. against Wales. And right at the moment when they needed to do, they looked like they weren't going to score a try. They got one. And then right at the very end, when Wales were pushing for it, they got another one. And yeah, they were, it was their best game of the tournament by a mile. It but was. Like, yeah, but as you said, in that game, early in that game, Wales could have gone to, was it 14 or 17? They were 10 up and they could, they were line out, 10 metres out. Yeah. And they chalk cocked up their line out. Yeah. Anyway. What else did I think? I thought the, I thought New Zealand's kicking game was very good. Oh, the chips, Jesus. Um, and I thought their fielding game was very good. Like I thought that, that like they worked to get back in the backfield to cut off Lowy. They seem to have three people in the backfield. Yeah. Like so often. And that's the other thing actually about Ireland as well. Like we played this game with so many passes. Like Sexton in this game had 73 passes. Like I've never seen it. I've never seen an out half pass more than 40 times. And some people go, oh, that's a problem. It's just like how much we passed the ball and how very, how rarely we were caught like looking for a man with nobody left. Like the team worked so hard off the ball, particularly uh, the back three and, and including in this Jimmy O'Brien who came on around 52 minutes for Mac Hansen and did absolutely exceptionally well. They work incredibly hard off the ball to support each other, to be there and to have good, well-timed runs. But the Kiwis, just as smart, just as hard working off the ball. We couldn't land the ball on the grass at all. Yeah. Um, and we were chasing, you know, like we 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 had to chase tries. Getting that start was was just massive. Mm. You know, so you just like penalties and line outs in the first 20 minutes. Yeah, I felt like the whole game we couldn't, like we still played well in uh, large patches. Obviously scored three tries. It just felt like there was no point where we could ever uh, get fully stable. We couldn't exert pressure on them because we're always behind them. Like we did well to hold them out after seven minutes. When I say pressure, I mean, yeah, we exerted pressure, got down into their half, made them make loads of tackles. But I mean, heavy psychological pressure that comes from when you're chasing. The, the type of pressure they put on us by going 13 nil ahead. Yeah, it was... Um... Yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny old game. Uh, we'll finish up talking about this game by uh, inviting you to tell me what you think of the the draw for the tournament. Oh. <laughs> Don't you never ask? Well, no, it's fucking key. It is a key factor of this tournament. It's this appalling draw. I, I I went back and researched something, and I'm just going to read it out to you what I found. Between the end of Rugby World Cup 19 and the start of Rugby World Cup 23, either Ireland or South Africa were world number one for all bar three weeks. New Zealand were number one for two weeks in September, October 2021. So the end, second half, sorry, last week in September, first week of October. France for one week in July 2022. So South Africa were number one for 138 weeks over two spells. Ireland for 60 weeks over one spell plus a further five after this tournament kicked off. So for the four years between the tournaments, slightly less than four years because it goes from one final on the tournament to the first match of another tournament, Ireland or South Africa were number one in the world for every week except three, all right? Not only in the same half of the draw, they were in the same fucking group. What an absolute nonsense. 
Yeah, it's like when you put um, you you organise Wimbledon so that Federer plays Nadal in the quarters. <laughs> it's Federer plays Nadal in the fucking second round, you know, and then plays Djokovic in the quarters. Yeah. No, it's 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 made a huge impact, and just to just to extrapolate from that, on on the other, like people who are neutrals watching that weekend are going, it's the best weekend of quarterfinals I've ever seen, because two of the games were absolute fucking worldies, and all four games had something to recommend them, like the the Argentina Wales game, it was a, it was a November international, you would have flicked over the channel, but the stakes are so high. The atmosphere is so raw in the stadium that it was actually an enthralling watch with far more changes of of lead and momentum in it than I had thought possible. And, and you know, I wouldn't say exactly the same for Fiji, England, but yeah, Jesus, that was enthralling because of the stakes and because there was this huge swing back and then a late recovery from England. But the Jesus, the, pit, the those two games were like interesting because they were quarterfinals. The other two games are just fucking amazing games by any standard of rugby played ever. Um, but, if if but we if we question like, question the whole draw thing, I've uh, like um, the dr- reason they make you draw so early is to sell tickets, right? Yeah, as early as possible. Mm-hmm. And like, are we saying that? They could do that if they did the draw a year later, two years out from the tournament. Would Ireland still have been number one? Well, my feeling on it is like the nature of the rugby season is that there's ranking tournaments every single year. It's the Six Nations and the Rugby Championship. So you just pick one, whichever you need to get your tickets sold. And then you just go, that's that's how you rank it like. It's an odd. I don't. I don't know how much semi-final tickets cost. I do know, based on what you said, that the only match in the first round that was more expensive than the Ireland matches was France the Japan Zealand. match. Oh, in Japan, yeah, Nantes, and maybe France, France, New Zealand. I think Des Des said that one. Um, and I suppose my view in it, and it's it's born out from experience in 2015, but see, like the tickets have been sold, is the semifinals, and one semifinal in particular, is going to be hard. You're not going to make your money back from that. Now, the fact is, They've sold their tickets, and you, you kind of come to this uneasy thing with uh, with World Rugby and with any ticket vendors about can you sell tickets for what they're actually worth? And what I mean by that is, like, were England to be playing France in a World Cup semi final, people would pay like two grand a ticket. Yeah, but ticket sellers find that very difficult to justify because, oh, you know, the ordinary fan can't go and because they're pricing people out of the market. But the fact is, people will pay that money and World Rugby will be delighted to have it. If you've got Argentina playing New Zealand, like, you can't give them away. I know. I had tickets for, well, I didn't have it. Des had them and I was trying to get rid of them on his behalf. For Argentina, Australia, we just ended up giving them to, Richard went, I think, with Lynn. 
like for a day out, but like you couldn't get rid of them. No, it wasn't worth it wasn't worth the post and package. Nobody wanted to go to watch Australia play Argentina on a Sunday in London. So the, the, it's kind of skewed to sell the tickets in the group stages. The attendances at all the matches were brilliant. Doubtless they've sold all these follow-year team packages. People will have taken a punt on the semi-finals, but I, I'd be curious how many people they get to go to that match. I'd be curious if it's over 75,000. And if it is, like, how did they get them? Where they, are they giving them away? Because it's a long way from Argentina and it's a long way from New Zealand. And Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that angle at all, but I absolutely agree with you. Like, Argentina will attract the... Um, the French vote, but like the fucking air has gone out of the balloon in France in an enormous way. You know, once they, and when the hosts get knocked out of a tournament, like something in the tournament dies. It just does. And I think, I think that's the, like we got, we got chipped over with our draw. Um, haven't beaten South Africa, haven't beaten the champions in such a quality match to have to play the All Blacks. But like, that was, the bogey prize was having to play France um, and be the absolute villains if you went on and knocked them out. Like, if you're looking at it from France's point of view, they still like us more than the English, but like, they're going to like the English this weekend in Paris because there's going to be thousands of them. And they're going to bring over their, not quite as valuable as it used to be, Sterling, but they're still going to bring over lots of it. But like in Ireland and France, they essentially lost two teams in the same weekend and it wasn't inevitable that they were going to lose, but like the draw could have gone, sorry, the results could have gone slightly differently and they would have been guaranteed to lose one of those teams. And guaranteed to have one of them in the semi-final. And guaranteed to have one of them mm. in the semi-final. Now as it is, they don't have either of them in the semi-final. Mm. They had the English though. Digs like a demented mole there. Thunder's in there. That'll knock the wind out of him. Some of the fans not happy with that. Referee blows for half-time. You know, I was saying this to you, boy, this is a little bit off the, the topic, but I, sometimes I think Razzie gets, like, too much praise for mind games, and other times I think, like, this guy might be such a natural, intuitive son of a bitch. Son of a bitch. That he's he, a total son of a bitch. Yeah, that he just <laughs> uh, that he just figures out how things like I was thinking like Razzie's and you know Razzie is the Donald Trump have of international lost, Yeah, he reads the fucking he has this intuitive grasp of what what's gonna get him over to use wrestling parlance. So like they've lost quite a lot of games since they've been world champions, more than they should have. You know, they're a really good team. But as he fucking said, it's stall out by going, it's because everyone fucking is biased against us. And now, like, that's all, that is all that South Africans say. Um, like, when I say all that South Africans say, the South African sort of rugby social media end of things, and even their magazines, like, every time they win, South Africa rugby magazine comes and goes, what did you think of that? It's their first question. <laughs> it's that's absolutely true. atrocious. Yeah, that, that's so true. you know if South Africa and, lose, and, you know they've been screwed. If they win, it's because they're great. That's and and second, that's that's like a that's like a Razzie to the people. But then Razzie to the to the changing room is like he sends this team out like a pack of wild dogs. <laughs> you know they play with such heart, and they always play a pack high. of disciplined wild dogs. Yeah, like watching. Watching South Africa play France, 
haven't watched them play Ireland, and albeit it, it's a bit picked up a yellow card, you think to yourself... For an accident. Like, for an accident. Like, it was hard. His knees were mm. bending. The guy was... You know, they were they were going counter to yeah. each other. Um, they played... This team plays with such discipline. Um, and it's... It, Oh, it's a complete three-card trick by Razzie. Like he, he made himself the absolute enemy. Like he got banned. Yeah, twice. For like baiting referees and, and criticizing world rugby. And he's turned up with the most angelic team. Like, I don't know. It's kind of surprising. I don't know if it's surprising for referees what they what they get from. So it's look, it's it's not the it's not the four that France well, France aren't interested. Like they wanted their Mm. Their darling French team to be in it. I guess. I guess to that one. I was at that match as well. I looked at the 15s being lined up, and then the subs bench, and I thought to myself, "Gee, the Safas are so well balanced. Like they've 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 got experience to beat the band. They've got good good players playing in the right positions for them. They've got good guys off the bench. They're covered in a lot of ways." Yeah. They've got two place kicking options on the bench. Um, they've got two really good sub props. They've got a really good sub second row. They've got good back rows. Cocker. Um, and you're going like their their first fifteen all the way through. Whereas you look at France and you go, I'm not sure about these guys. Like they, I wasn't sure about their second they row. They haven't won enough, and you're going, it's. It's gonna come down to like genius from Peno and genius from Dupont, which was almost enough. Like yeah. Antoine, Antoine Dupont is an outrageous rugby player. Is that unbelievable? But like I was looking at that French second row, and ever since Vilemsa got injured, I was there going, are they going to be able to get enough out of Taufa Fanua to play him alongside one of their line-out second rows? Because they have two line-out second rows here. And in this game, they just threw it to Wokey all the time, who is fucking amazing out of touch. But like, where does that leave Flamont? Is he supposed to be the fella? Is he supposed to be the tractor? Is he the tractor? Yeah. Yeah, because he ain't. Like, And he's a wonderful looser side of the second row. You know, if you put him beside a Taufafanu or preferably a Valemsa, they get much more balance. But like, Wokey played as much rugby as a, as a back row as he did as a second row up until like two years ago. And my favorite, like that that match had so many amazing parts in it. Like from the first line at mall that the French took where they Gatland it and put like 10 players in and then did a running mall with with big uh, Weenie Antonio at the front. Like that is, that looked amazing. I don't like Ginger McLaughlin except in Technicolor, you know? And then you had uh, Malvaca just playing a game of his life or most other players' lives as well. But my favorite part of it all was Valem said, I, you can't see this because we're, we're on the radio, <laughs> but doing that, doing the mark sign and then banging his fist together and calling a scrum off a mark, which I've literally never seen in rugby. I knew it could happen because it's a free kick, but I'd never seen it. And, and I just thought like, this is fascinating. It was like when, if you recall a number, like maybe 20 years ago, the Argentines played a, a friendly against us in Lansdowne Road and they just fucking, the kickoff, they just like bumped it along the ground so they could start with a scrum on halfway. <laughs> I've forgotten that, yeah. And um, it was just like that. It's like, oh, we're going to engineer a scrum. And I, like, I'm, I, you know, fucking 
projecting here, but you could see the South Africans going, we knew we were going to do this at some stage. This is our chance. Whereas the French were going, oh, fuck. we've got two gangly bean poles in the second row here, you know? And they have a huge scrum and they're psyched. I'm not I'm not sure what the Safas did from that scrum. Um, penalty. They won a penalty. They kicked the penalty to touch and B.A. Barry caught the ball, jumped back into play. And kicked it up to them, and then they yeah. ended up kicking it out, and it was a French line out for less of a gain than the penalty would have been. Um, I remember. But what I would argue that they were doing was they were tying up eight of the French players, mm. and they were bringing the, they were, they were sort of forcing that the French backs had to go into certain positions because it's it's a scrum, and they were essentially um, trying to isolate uh, by Barry. Um, so they could bomb him again. So they could bomb him. Like there was one kick at the beginning of the second half where they kicked it his way, but they left it a little bit too close. And Clichy, not Clichy, Fiku had the opportunity to to sort of stay further left because he hadn't been committed, mm-hmm. and and he caught the ball. And it reminded me of going to Anfield to watch. Liverpool play Brighton and Brighton just kicked it at Joe Gomez who was playing centre-back partner to Virgil van Dijk and they just kept it away from van Dijk all match and sometimes van Dijk to just to give himself something to do would, would step across into Joe Gomez's side of the box and, and head it out um, whereas in this match I thought that South Africa would attack Penno's wing to bring the play over to that side of the pitch and then they just bombed it at Bay Berry and they they completely knew what they were doing and it was so simple and so powerful and so effective because I think it was combined with the fact that Ramos doesn't convincingly fill fill that backfield there was massive gaps so they were kicking at a winger who wasn't convincing in the air and, and, and is a 20 year old and is 20 19 19, 19. you know and, and isn't just tall and isn't tall and they were finding that his fullback wasn't filling the space behind him and wasn't covering effectively for him. And you sort of go, well, how, how effectively can he cover? Like if he's being isolated by the way that they've set up the phase beforehand, what can he do? And it's a reminder, not for listeners of this pod, about the fullback's role is like your first defender. It's, it's a sweeper role. And it's, if you can get an attacking fullback, it's great. But ideally you want somebody who can do both. But like the defensive part of the job is is more important. And it it, it doesn't seem like that to a lot of fans, but it's why Gervin Dempsey has so many caps. Mm. You know, it, it's why Rob Carney has so many caps. Um, when it's not there, you notice it. When it is there, you take it for granted. Yeah. And the secondary thing about that, attacking that side with the crossfield bombs, as Nemo Sopoaga did to Jimmy O'Brien uh, in the Samoa Ireland last fixture, is that as Samoa did, they put a six, they were, like they have a six foot five or six foot six number, six. They kept him on that side, and you're just, they're going, so either Jimmy O'Brien, this fella can go up and compete if he gets close to it, and he's like half a foot taller than the fullback and is just as good an athlete, or if it's a little bit long for him, he can just fucking drill the fullback with a run-up from like 25 metres, make him spill the ball or just like win that contact. And you saw 
I think Etzebeth maybe challenged for the first try, but certainly Peter Steftatoy was out there on the right, like far from where he usually plays. He's mm. normally very close to all breakdowns and chasing the 10, but he was out there a little less in the game. Uh, but just like, look at his absolute two meter tall, 120 kilo giant running, you know, a very reasonable, like 40 meter dash to get up and challenge. And when you're running onto the ball and then you know what's happening, like, he has to get up and challenge and he can flap at it because if he flaps at it and it goes backwards, all his team are running onto it. Even if it doesn't have to be all his team because he's out wide, it has to be one or two players and they'll get it. Whereas if Biel Barry flaps at it or Ramos flaps at it and it goes backwards, they're the last man in the French team. It just goes into open play. You know, so the Springboks, I felt like the thing that has impressed me the thing that did impress me in that game was how the box, their coaching staff, particularly uh, the two head guys, go, they have an idea and they go, just a little bit wild. Let's do it in a fucking massive match. What do you mean the wild idea was? Well, I think that I think choosing the scrum is uh, is a, is a like choosing the scrum off the mark is a wild idea. That was pre-planned at some stage. And I also think, like, let's play Peter Stefty Toy miles out from where he normally plays, where he knows he's brilliant, where he can exert loads of pressure. Take him sort of out of the game for fair portions. Like, Olivon fucking dominated the battle of the two gigantic wrong number wearing blindsides for the first half. Olivon was all over the place. And you're going, where's Stefty Toy? Like, he's there going, he's out, like, doing the Ryan Baird slash Peter O'Manny thing. Wide out, he's not there, and Olivon and Angelange, but especially Olivon are making meters. And you're going, but this is how we're going to play when we attack. Like they, their chances were, they got like 15 seconds of attack and scored off them. You know, twice if not three. I can't remember their other try. But um, so I thought those are. Dialenda, no, it was Jesse Creel put a kick through. Jesse Creel's amazing. Dialenda followed up. And oh yeah, so it's the end. They won where he walked in, basically. Yeah, right yeah. Side, yeah. But after a number of phases, yeah. after and after so chasing a kick, yeah. So yeah. it's two rather than three, um, because the other one was the Arense one at, at the start, where there was a. I think Edzabeth got up and challenged, and the ball just took a hop mm. behind all the French players, and the Arense started gone. So I think that sort of let's play this non particularly Springbok game. I remember Saracens played like that. They used to use Strettle so well. Just like kick across to a bomb and he'd get up and just waggle his hand at it and like n- make no attempt to catch the ball. But if he could bat it back, like the whole Saracens team is coming onto it. Um, so I thought that was really impressive. Um, but I, I thought that like, you know, France using the big mall early on was very... Uh, uncharacteristic them. I've never seen them do that before. So I thought that there was so much to recommend in that game, like that amazing charge down of the kick from um, from Colby, who's one of the only, like maybe Aaron's is as fast as him, but like Colby is certainly still one of the fastest players in the game. And then just sort of random shit, like Jalabert's incredibly weird backwards touch kick. No. Oh. Which... Oh, that was a strange. I don't know if he could do that again if he tried, like... Just wild. And and then he actually ran. Like, he played, like, you know, completely like a a, a, a first 5'8". In that, like, like like an inside centre. He just ran like Phil Bennett. 
His running in that game was sensational. He beat so many players with inside steps out, like like you don't see out halves able to do. Like the pressure is suffocating, and this fellow was able to make so many half breaks. But he like no shape. Like Dupont gave all the shape to that team, and Jalabert was just basically like a runner. Fascinating game. I felt the overall the game suffered from in many ways having maybe the best first half of all time to this age that there were so many substitutions and breaks and stops in the second half and so much music played during those breaks. And so many scrum resets. And so many scrum resets because the referee didn't really want to give any decisions at the scrum, I felt. Um, I Like it suffered, the second half by comparison was, was sort of nowhere near as good as it. Uh, it was still a, obviously a fascinating match and it was a very dramatic climax and... Um, I just, I just thought it was, uh, yeah, it, it could never live up to that first half in no. some ways. I thought, though, uh, maybe the smartest thing about all the Springbok um, strategy was realizing how, how exerting that first half must have been and emptying their bench so early so that everyone who came off the bench could absolutely give it as like a huge whack and not have anyone who plays eight minutes or 10 minutes. They took off Khaleesi after f- less than fifty minutes. Yeah, he's their captain and is like their clear, like their leader. So, so obviously on the pitch, and like uh, they just, they just took. Uh, I guess one big risk was like uh, Bongi and Nambi had to play seventy minutes. Yeah, seventy plus. Yeah. And like that was their, that was their kind of like he was, was he was wrecked. That but that was like their ex, extra forward on the bench. It's like that was their their six three split. They just got him to play twice as long as he usually does, basically. Mm. Or nearly twice as long as he usually does. And Dion Furry had to play like, uh, you know, maybe an extra 20 minutes and someone else got to play an extra 20 minutes to make up for it. Um, but I think I think Khaleesi had to empty the tank because they picked for Mullen, yes, who's a very strong mauler, and because they were playing Peter Steff de Toit out of, out of position, essentially. Um, and I think that willingness... Whatever way the dynamic between Nienabar and Erasmus is, is is almost unique. Or, or I'm kind of going, is it, is it not, is it not a bit more like when Hansen and Wayne Smith. Wayne Smith and Graham Henry were there as the three wise men, and they used to rotate, um, yeah, like attack got- and set pieces and defense between them, like just just to keep it, like to keep it fresh maybe for the players, to challenge them as coaches, to challenge each other as coaches. Um, because they've used both the 7-1 bench and when it came down to it, they used a 5-3 bench and they dropped Faf to Kirk, which is quite amazing. Kobus Reinecke's passing was excellent. Yeah. And Faf to Kirk was all over um, DuPont when DuPont was tarder. So you're sort of looking at it going, Jesus, like that worked. Like the, and, and like, Bongi was wrecked, but like he he plays for Erasmus, he plays for the Springboks, like whatever that connection is there, um, like he, he sort of going, you've got two matches left, mate. Like you are gonna be absolutely shattered either yeah. way, but like he's he does it, you know. Um, also, just want to say Jesse Creel had the best game I've ever seen him play in his entire life. By a mile, so many incredibly clutch defensive moments, and then that kick. It wasn't even a grubber. It was kind of like a side grubber. Still hopped up 
perfectly. I think Colby would have finished it anyway so fast, but it was just such an incisive, incredible. It's like fucking, I don't know, who's the best through ball merchant of all time in soccer? Jan Mulby. A classic number 10, just rolling the ball into exactly the, the stride of the attacker. It was so beautiful. And then like when Charlie Bear dinked the ball and stepped the fullback in one like instance and you think he probably doesn't have the pace to get through. It doesn't matter because it's fucking like massive bear dives on his back. Yeah. And it's Jesse like Creel. Yeah. Jesse Creel just like big bear hug slamming him down on the turf. I think he came off straight after that as well. And you're just kind of like, I just thought he had the best game I've ever seen him play in his entire life. I kind of I felt as well that the French coaching left something to be desired. Like, I don't think they got anything out of the possible match. Like, they never put Fiku one-on-one in the air against Aronza and Colby, who he absolutely towers over. Peno or Fiku? Fiku. Fiku. Like, I know he's playing second center, but yeah. just there going, you got to manufacture a situation somehow where you've got your six foot four center who's experienced, who's like, who's... It's really good in the air. You know, who's loads of caps, who's like really capable in the air against their five foot six winger. Like, yeah, you have to, you have to make that happen in yeah. whatever way you run a set piece. And they didn't get enough out of Peno. And you're kind of thinking to yourself, like, can you not just combo those up and like play a move that runs Peno into a position where they have to mark him mm-hmm. and they're not concerned about Fiku until you kick and give him until the you kick Fiku yeah. the one-on-one and you're sort of going why didn't you do that like and why didn't you do that one but like why didn't you like why didn't you engineer situations for Peno to get into the game you're talking about the music it's it struck me during the match particularly the fact it was in the Stade de France that like this is Max Guazzini's legacy and this is the sort of the this is what happens when you've got a club, a vibrant club, as opposed to the unionized. Because so often when you're in Ireland, like the solution to everything is like centralize the contracts, make it union specific. But you would never get Max Guazzini if you had a, a rugby union running one of your franchises. It would just never happen. Whereas you had this radio impresario in Paris, like playing music, uh, you know, Dressing the team in pink, Dressing doing the nudie team calendars. In pink, do, yeah, doing nudie, like, and like, you know, really like homoerotic calendars in black and white in the 90s, um, playing the team in pink, like when nobody else wore pink. Nobody else wore pink. Playing the team in hibiscus jerseys. I everyone wears pink. Uh, selling, like, selling out the stadium because he charged a fiver in, playing music. And like, some of it works, some of it doesn't. But like, the stadium's absolutely rocking. And it was rocking because it was a great match, but like it's rocking all the way. There's a real atmosphere there. They timed the music well. They timed the breaks well. They announced the teams better. You know, like there's just, it's it's not going to do it on its own, but it, it like it's so different than Lansdowne Road. It is mm. just, it is like it is night and day. A they French international. Cigar smoking in Lansdowne Road is nice. <laughs> <laughs> An old man farting. <laughs> Second. <laughs> <laughs> and put some wooden benches in the west stand oh my god and bring back the terraces and because otherwise it doesn't matter either way you can bring it all back we're never getting to the semi-final anyway <laughs> anyway to wrap it up I'll say on both those games you can look at all the things that those teams did wrong and all the ways they came up short and in both games like it's block down conversion and I said to you earlier when they blocked that down I was like Oh, that's going to count in this game, isn't it? Yeah, when do you ever yeah. see a fucking block down conversion? 
And like, that's the amount of fucking points they lost by. And then like the, you know, Kelleher, every right to go for that. He's a fucking try scoring off the back of a mall hooker as Stan Sheehan is, as our fucking third choice hooker is uh, Herring. Like, and everywhere to go for that and think. That's going to be a try. That's going to be a try and, and like could very well have been, could have slid down a, you know, a sweaty tie and hit the, hit a blade of grass. Like, it's very much history written by the victors and both those games, both those games were so close. They were so good. The two, two of the best rugby games I've ever seen in my entire life. And I hate the results in both of them. I think if there's something about Ireland, it's the line it and, I don't know if there's like an artificial intelligence or something like that, like a contrary bot, re, you know, writing the comments. But the comment section is the only bit where you start seeing people question, well, like, how come our line is always bad? And how come nobody criticizes o- O'Connell? It's because he's Paul O'Connell. Because um, no journalist is going to do it. Like, journals keep on writing, oh, O'Connell will have to get the backs. Like, the players will let O'Connell down, you know, with this perfect line And you're kind of going, well, like, our line keeps on being not that good. So... It can't all be the players letting down Paulie. No, so. because the personnel changed. You know, the personnel changed. So it didn't matter if Herring was thrown in or Kelleher was thrown in or Shane was thrown in. If it was Ryan calling or Hendo calling or Peter O'Mahony calling. Like, you know, there was one game in which it worked as well as it really should. Uh, so sorry, I interrupted you there. I, I just thought that was that was the sort of... And it'd be hard to pin down, like, one particular line that we lost. But... I do think the line-out was the Achilles heel of the team. Throughout this uh, portion of the season, including the warm-ups, it was said in all the warm-ups, so they'll look to get this better before they go on to the World Cup. And in the end, it didn't. Yeah. From the Italian match. Oh, I'll see you in four years. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 just one more thing. Just like there's always my feeling uh, about like it's obviously completely natural when you're just finishing a World Cup. You're looking at the new World Cup, the next World Cup four years ahead. And people are thinking, how how is this the age profile of this team? And who who should be brought into the team? My, my opinion on that is like four years out is way too far ahead to plan. There's so many variables that you win the you win the tournament or you compete, you look at the next tournament and there's certain stages during that four-year cycle where you can look up from the next tournament and go, this is where I need to start making changes. You could see that with, um, you know, it's typically the the sort of the, the, the tour that goes at the same time as the Lions. But there's also periods where you're looking at, you're playing, say we'll have Italy at home and we, we'll, I don't think we're going to play like a, the strongest team we could play there. And then you'll have one November international. Uh, but looking forward with regards to how Ireland, somebody <laughs> I overheard this, overheard in Dublin, was uh, I was passing a, a school on the way into work and I overheard this comment beside the lolly. I think she was saying it to the lollipop lady. Yeah, she goes, this is the best team we'll ever have. And I thought like... I remember when the 2007 team was the best team we'll ever have with Draco, Paulie, Raj, uh, fucking Gordon Darcy playing really well. There's still, you know, five of Ireland's top 10 try scores were still in that team. Like, 
with, with Shaggy and Dennis Hickey and Gervin Dempsey and Jordan Murphy. So like that was that was a, a great team. There's always it's always seems like when somebody who's really good departs Sexton and Earls, um, in particular Sexton, that like geez, we'll never replace him. And you don't ever replace a guy who's that good, but the emphasis changes. Uh, and Ireland are have the guys coming up now, say from the ninety-nine the players born in ninety-nine, so the twenty nineteen under twenties, the twenty twenty under twenties, etc., up to last year's. So you're looking at three out of five years we did a grand slam in the under twenty-six nations, and the others we would have in the twenty twenty one that was caught off by COVID. We finished top of that pile having played three matches. And won three. Yeah. How there's teams who played all five and they finished below us. You know, there's I think we're the only team who played three and we were still ahead of the table. So we're extreme. There's this, an outstanding crop of players from each of those, from four of those five years, and, and five, you know, because like Joe McCarthy was from the Dodge that didn't win the Grand Slam, and he's already played for Ireland in a World Cup quarterfinal. So my feeling is that I wouldn't, like I'd look forward to seeing how these players play. I think Ireland, the Ireland players are going to be quite sequestered. There's a Six Nations in three and a half months, then a tour to South Africa in the summer. So I don't think we're going to see a huge amount of internationals in, you know, the URC, uh, certainly for the next couple of months. But it's a great opportunity with the URC start next week to think of like, this is where these younger players, it's not a case of parachuting them in, it's a case of them making their bones at that level and proving that they can, you know, potentially push to get into a bigger squad. All my predictions were really bad in this World Cup and another one that didn't come to fruition was I was, I was pretty certain and said it on air that at the end of the World Cup, whichever we were winning or losing, Jack Crowley would be on the pitch and he wasn't on the pitch at the end of the World Cup. And even going back, you're sort of asking yourself, oh, you know, should we have put him on with 10 minutes left, eight minutes left? And you sort of go, no. But then you go, we needed somebody to challenge the line against New Zealand. Um, But then you sort of find yourself going, nah, like you needed Johnny on the pitch. Like even if we scored early, you're kind of going, to just see the match out. Um, and then you also sort of say to yourself, oh, we need Sexton to be on the pitch for 80 minutes. Like, we need Sexton to be fit. We need Sexton to play and get himself. And he started all these games and he got through them. So I think it was one of the other comments that's going around is like starting as players have too many matches in their legs. And you go, no, like it's more the fact that James Ryan and Robbie Henshaw weren't there rather than the fact that guys played more matches like that that's not like playing games is what these guys are here to do um so Garland did an awful lot right um that's why it's so disappointing yeah and again just to to say again like that's cup match rugby 